renaissance, many men sought their fortune with the sword. Many died a violent and anonymous death, but a rare few covered their names with glory. The Italians called these men the condottieri. These are their stories. 1516 was a great year for Italy. After 20 years of constant warfare, peace had returned to the land. Renaissance armies were like swarms of locusts. They devoured everything in sight. Peace meant those armies were now kept in garrisons where they could cause little trouble. Peace meant prosperity. In the countryside, peasants grew fat. In the cities, merchants counted their sweet profits. But Italy was still a warrior society in the Renaissance. And to those lords and ladies suckled on war and betrayal, nothing could be more dull than a long general peace. Many of these bored lords and ladies were pleased when the Marquis of Mantua offered to host a duel. The fight would be between two well-known mercenary leaders known as Condottieri. The challenger was Count Hugo Pepoli, a captain of knights in the service of the King of France. He would be fighting a captain in the Papal Army, the famous Count Guido Rangoni. Both men were from Bologna, a city renowned for its university and its skilled swordsmen. They were distant cousins. Hugo and Guido were both known to be courageous, and they both hated each other. In short, it promised to be one hell of a fight and a perfect escape from the tedium of peace. The duel was set for December 31st. It was to be held outside Castle Gonzaga, near Mantua, in the heart of northern Italy. On the morning of that day, a large crowd gathered outside Castle Gonzaga to gossip and wait for the fight. Here the Marquis had prepared a large dueling ground, four spear tosses long on each side. Above the dueling ground stood a platform where the two judges of the duel would observe the fight and make sure that the rules were obeyed. The dueling ground itself was surrounded by a fence that would separate the fighters from the crowd and just beyond the fence stood two snow-white tents trimmed with an imperial purple. The tent on the western side of the ground was emblazoned on the front with the red eagle and silver shell of the house of Rangoni. This was to be the place where Count Guido would prepare himself for the fight. Near the tent were some seats where his noble supporters sat waiting. The tent on the eastern side bore the black and silver checker pattern of the house of Popoli. The checker pattern represented a device used to track the exchange rates of different currencies, a reminder of the Papoli's origins as bankers and money changers. Hugo also had seats for his own supporters, mostly nobles from Milan. Naturally, some of these Milanese nobles sought out supporters of Guido Rangoni for some friendly gambling. Hugo Papoli had fought bravely alongside the Milanese and their French overlords. Hugo's fans were sure that one blow from the mighty Popoli would split his smaller opponent in half. They would have found plenty of wealthy nobles from Venice willing to take that wager. In the past, Guido had helped to save Venice in its darkest days by fighting forces many times larger than his own. The rich and arrogant Venetians were sure that the tenacious little Guido would do the same thing today. Suddenly, the piercing cry of two long trumpets rang out around the dueling ground and commanded the crowd to silence. The duelists were approaching. For a moment, the only sound was the snap of flags and the swirling wind. Then the crowd heard the gentle thump of walking horses growing steadily closer. The lords and ladies craned their necks to see the bold warrior. The men did not disappoint. 
The challenger of this duel, Hugo Popoli, appeared first. He wore a purple cloak trimmed with gold. His doublet revealed wide and powerful shoulders while his tight-fitting hose showed muscular thighs. He had long curls of hair around his head and a net of golden thread upon the crown of it. He rode a large and powerful warhorse of the Lombard type, bred for carrying knights into battle. He stood high and erect in the saddle like a knight preparing to break through a line of infantry. Guido Rangoni was just astride behind him. He too wore a purple and gold cloak. He had close-cropped hair and a small beard, and preferred simple clothing, letting his reputation speak for him. He had built his fame on lightning-fast cavalry raids, and he rode a smaller horse of Spanish ancestry. He sat this horse with the easy touch and silky grace of a man who lives in the saddle. As he reached the dueling ground, he brought his horse to a stop with a gently whispered word. Guido slid down and entered the dueling ground where the powerful Pepoli was already waiting. Nothing in Rangoni's stride demonstrated the least fear of his larger opponent. A fresh round of speculation broke the silence. New bets were placed as the odds shifted towards Pepoli. In combat, size matters. Both men presented themselves to the judge on his wooden platform above the dueling ground. The judge wrapped his staff on the platform for silence. He solemnly called upon Papoli and Rangoni to be good Christians and to forgive one another. A soft laughter rippled through the crowd. The judge's words and grave demeanor were just theater. There was no way these men were not going to fight. Guido Rangoni and Hugo Papoli played their part in this little farce. They angrily refused the judge's request. They had been trying to fight this duel for three years and now they had their day. There would be blood. The judge enumerated the many insults that Guido Rangoni has made against Hugo Papoli. Most notably, Guido had called Papoli a coward. Then came time for the election of weapons. Hugo Papoli made the original challenge for this duel. This granted the right to choose the weapons to Guido Rangoni. Every ear in the crowd strained to hear his words. Rangoni declared the fight will be with swords, and the duelists would wear only a bronze gauntlet for armor. He presented the weapons chosen for inspection by two famous warriors, who then nodded their approval. And the duel will be fought to first blood? Asked the judge. Rangoni stated the duel would be fought to completion, to the death. Excitement buzzed through the crowd. Who had ever heard of such a duel taking place? Many here had worn the blood of their fallen enemies upon their clothes. But a duel to the death without armor? It was reckless, practically suicidal. Once Rangoni and Papoli retired to their tents to dress for the fight, the judge rapped his staff loudly once more. He made a solemn declaration to the crowd. When the duel begins, you must remain silent. Upon the pain of death, none may cry out when a wound is given or received. Guido Rangoni was the first to emerge from his tent. In his right hand, he bore a sword. A bronze gauntlet covered his left arm. His Venetian supporters cheered as he took his place before the judge. The French and their Milanese cronies made further insults about his short stature. A few minutes later, to the cheers of his own supporters, Hugo Popoli emerged from his tent. He was dressed almost identically to Rangoni, save for one crucial difference. To keep his long flowing hair in a bunch, Papoli kept the net of golden thread upon the crown of his head. 
Rangoni objected to this net. He said to the judge in a voice used to commanding troops on the battlefield, tell Popoli to cut his hair short like a man, like mine, or else to tie it up in a knot like a serving girl. His friends erupted into laughter at this insult. Papoli ripped the net from his head and threw it on the ground. The laughter grew louder as everyone saw the reason for the golden net. Hugo Papoli was nearly bald. His face darkened with repressed rage at the laughter, and one look from him was enough to silence anyone laughing. Without a sound, the crowd watched the two men retire to their corner where their seconds waited. Then, at a signal from the judge, Rangoni and Papoli emerged from their corners of the field. They stalked toward one another on the cat-like feet of skilled fencers. The duel had begun. L'Arte dell'Army is pleased to present this seven-part series on the duel of Guido Rangoni and Hugo Papoli. When we started this project, we thought we would do a little background to understand why these well-known Bolognese swordsmen were dueling, and then go on to describe the sword fight itself. But the more we understood these men's histories, the more we became fascinated by their lives, as well as the culture of the condottieri. We hope this series on their duel captivates you half as much as their life and times has captivated us. The rivalry between Guido Rangoni and Hugo Pepoli stretched back to their boyhood in the fencing halls of Bologna. Rangoni was a member of the Bentavoglio clan, the most powerful family in the city. The Bentavoglio name is important to remember because that family is intimately woven into the history between these two men. The Pepoli were the number two family in the city. The families had a complicated history. Grandpa Pepoli had tried to kill Guido's great-uncle. In return, Guido's great-uncle had Grandpa Pepoli murdered. When the boys were growing up, the families were allies, at least they were in theory. But in truth, no family in Renaissance Italy was ever content to be number two in town. The fencing halls of the city provided a place for this rivalry to play out. No one recorded the friendly bouts of boys, but as Guido and Hugo were the same age, it was a near certainty that they crossed practice swords on multiple occasions. The term fencing hall brings to mind a large and spacious room, purpose-built for fencing. These fencing halls were anything but that. Most were smaller than the size of a modern suburban living room. They were likely rented by the fencing masters and most of the fencing halls probably doubled as classrooms for the university. In 1496, Hannibal Bentivoglio bucked this trend and built a palace dedicated to the study of arms. He called it the Casino. It must have been here where Rangoni received his education on the use of the sword from the famous maestro Antonio De Luca. And it was here too where he would have fought against Hugo Papoli with sword and buckler. The sword and buckler, a small shield about 10 inches in diameter, was the preferred weapon for teaching the art of the sword. The city of Bologna paid professional fencing masters to help its youth learn to fight. Those fencing masters developed a sport of fencing for their students based on the sword and buckler. This sport was not just for fun, but to make their students into warriors and captains. Modern martial artists are familiar with the saying, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. There was an equivalent saying in the Renaissance, a man cannot be considered prepared to fight until he has hurt his teeth rattling in his skull. The Bolognese art of fencing offered a student many opportunities to hear their teeth rattle. Strikes to different parts of the body offered varying amounts of points, but the head was the most valuable target. For a taller fencer like Hugo Popoli, powerful downward strikes to the opponent's head were a natural attack. 
Hugo Popoli's maestro would have told him to keep his blade free and in constant motion, the style of fighting the Bolognese called wide play. For a shorter fencer like Guido Rangoni, the game was trickier. Sword and small buckler is particularly advantageous for fencers with long limbs. Maestro De Luca would have taught Guido to cross his weapon with his opponent's weapon and control it so that he could enter into striking distance. The masters called this close play. Getting close was dangerous for Guido. The friendly fencing also involved punching an opponent in the face with the buckler, kicking them in the groin, or throwing them bodily to the ground. There were no weight classes, so a bigger and stronger fencer also held a distinct advantage in the striking and wrestling actions. Hugo Papoli probably got the better of Guido Rangoni in these youthful matches. Guido Rangoni did get the better education though. He learned how to fight at a disadvantage, a lesson that would serve him well in the real world after the boys became men. For Guido Rangoni, boyhood ended when his father died. Guido's father had been a much admired general and left a big pair of shoes for Guido to fill. Giovanni Bentivoglio, Guido's grandfather and the Lord of Bologna entrusted Guido with the command of his father's company. And so it was that young Guido found himself suddenly in charge of 200 experienced cavalrymen at the tender age of 16. And this happened when the city of Bologna found itself menaced by the armies of Cesare Borgia. This son of a pope had descended on the small cities in the neighboring region of Romagna like a thunderbolt and carved out a new duchy for himself, but his domain lacked a proper capital. None of the small provincial towns in Romagna suited a grand new duchy, but a big and rich city like Bologna would make a great capital for the new Duke of Romagna. The Bentivoglio suspected his designs, but Cesare Borgia was such a thunderbolt of a leader that he still managed to surprise the Bentivoglio. Like many famous generals in history, he succeeded by simply acting faster than anyone could anticipate. His forces quickly seized the fortresses guarding Bologna's eastern border and threatened to conquer Bologna itself. A conspiracy to seize one of the gates of the city and hold it open for Borgia failed. And when the Duke of Romagna found himself confronted by the army of Bologna, he went south into the territory of Florence to seek easier pickings. To understand why Bologna was secure when so many other cities fell easily into Borgia's lap, we must return to the casino. The Bentivoglio had supposedly built the casino in 1496 as a place to enjoy the practice of arms with their friends, but the timing of its construction suggests a more strategic motive. For hundreds of years, warfare in northern Italy had been dominated by professional, heavily armored cavalrymen. Time and training had made these men-at-arms into the best soldiers on the peninsula since the days of the Roman Empire. The Italians had not developed their infantry to the same standards, though. The prime role of infantry in Italy was to guard the ramparts of the cities. Outside of city walls, the infantry were just cannon fodder. They just could not stand up to the charge of heavily armored men-at-arms. Yet, by the 1490s, Italians were aware that they had fallen behind the times. France, Spain, Switzerland, and Germany had all developed professional infantry units that not only held fast against men-at-arms, but even drove them from the field. The first efforts to recruit a company of professional Italian infantry occurred from among the mountain folk of Romagna. These warlike men appeared to have provided their own weapons. They received nothing but a bright red and white shirt to protect them from the enemy's blows. Still, they soon proved their merit in battle. A few years later, across the mountains from Bologna, 
the lords of Umbria started forming professional infantry companies from the men of their land. They gave their men pikes. Then they trained them to fight in close formation like the famous Swiss pikemen. To give the men an advantage against the foreigners, the Umbrian lords taught their men how to wield a pike longer than those used by the Swiss. Neither focused on raising the individual skill of their soldiers. This was where the Bolognese excelled. The students trained in the fencing schools like the casino learned more than just fighting with weapons. They also learned to teach. This provided a group of captains who could both lead their men in battle and teach them how to use their weapons on the battlefield. Perhaps the best testament to the effectiveness of Bolognese training was this. Cesare Borgia's army employed battle-hearted Italian pikemen from both Umbria and Romagna. And after his initial skirmishes with the Bolognese forces, he decided to take what he could get through negotiation rather than to seek conquest. The Duke of Romagna tried to take Bologna again in 1502. This time the Bentivoglia would use diplomacy to tear apart his army from the inside, while the Bolognese cavalry units, like those of Rangoni, raided deep into Romagna. And once again, the Duke of Romagna was forced to negotiate. Cesare Borgia was preparing to attack Bologna a third time when his father died. This cut off the supply of money that had built his duchy. Soon his ill-starred realm would fall into the dustbin of history and Cesare Borgia would leave Italy forever, but this is a tale for another episode. Suffice it to say that Bologna successfully weathered the storm brought on by the Borgias and remained in the control of Guido Rangoni's family, and the training in arms taught in Bologna almost certainly played a large part in this victory. In later years, Bologna would be a go-to for the Republic of Venice whenever they needed to recruit top-shelf infantry. We do not know what Hugo Popoli was doing at this time, but Guido Rangoni was almost certainly drawn into the war between Florence and Pisa. One of his uncles was the commander of the Florentine force. In this Florentine army, Guido Rangoni would have been fighting alongside some of the most famous warriors in Italy at that time, men like Pietro del Monte and Mancino da Bologna. The skill of the swordsman was not enough to conquer Pisa and this war was ultimately unsuccessful for Florence. Julius II, the new pope, objected to the Bentivoglio serving as condottieri. He commanded the Lord of Bologna to keep his family from working as mercenaries. Giovanni Bentivoglio objected, asking how could a father be expected to keep his children from making their way in the world? That was enough for Pope Julius to decide it was time to oust the Bentivoglio from Bologna. He wanted the city under his own control, and the Bentivoglio had given him an excuse. He excommunicated the family and raised an army to send them packing. Once again, Bologna had to put an army into the field to fight off an invader. The Bentivoglio were able to assemble an army of a thousand cavalry and four thousand infantry to confront the Pope. But as the papal army slowly made its way to Bologna, the political situation grew worse for the Bentivoglio. One by one, their allies in northern Italy abandoned them. They had paid 6,000 ounces of gold to the King of France for protection, but he too refused to help the Bentivoglio. Bologna sent messengers to negotiate with the Pope, but he was not interested in talking. He was coming to liberate Bologna, whether they wanted it or not. To turn up the heat against the Bentivoglio, he placed the entire area of Bologna under interdict. 
this meant there could be no church services, no forgiving of sins, no final rites for the dying. This made people in the city incredibly unhappy. To keep a rebellion from breaking out, the Bentevoglio had to pull garrisons away from the castles in the countryside and focus on holding Bologna. Meanwhile, Guido and his uncles were busy with cavalry raids against the enemy forces with mixed success. But without garrisons, the fortresses in Bolognese territory fell one by one to the Pope's army. The Bentevoglio's main hope was to keep control of their city and wait for the Pope's coalition to fall apart. Hopes in Bologna were raised when riders discovered an army marching toward the city under the French banner. Had the French decided to honor their agreement after all? Yes, as it turned out, the French were there to honor their agreement with Pope Julius II. In exchange for three new French cardinals, the King of France had agreed to conquer Bologna for the Pope. The French first stormed the nearby fortress of Castelfranco. Then just in case the Bolognese did not get the message, the French started a cannonade against the walls of Bologna itself. Then the French general presented the Bentevoglio with an ultimatum. They could either leave the city with all the wealth they could carry and head into a comfortable exile under French protection, or they could remain in Bologna and watch the city be sacked and its people slaughtered. And so it was on the night of November 2nd in 1506 that the city of Bologna witnessed a strange sight. A vast armada of wagons rumbled along the streets of the city from the Bentevoglio Palace in the heart of Bologna to the city's westernmost gate. From there, the wagons continued across the drawbridge of the Gate of St. Felix, and then trundled off into the dark countryside beyond. The wagons were laden down with silks and silver plate and sundry other valuables, practically a king's ransom. Guido Rangoni, along with 500 other men of note, joined the Bentevoglio in exile. Some bounced along on fine horses, others tread the roads afoot. They were soldiers and allies of the Bentevoglio family. This procession of wagons rolled on westward along the ancient Roman highway known as the Via Emilia. Bit by bit, this sad caravan of exiles lost sight of their home. First, they lost sight of its walls. Then darkness took away the houses. Finally, even the soaring towers of Bologna that stabbed the moonlit sky were no more. We can only guess what the people of Bologna made of this exodus. The Bentevoglio had been popular. Under their 50-year leadership, the city had enjoyed a period of peace and prosperity long unseen in the turbulent city of Towers. It's safe to say the ordinary townsmen breathed a hefty sigh of relief when they departed. The city would be spared. They would be spared. The Pope thought it proper to give the people of Bologna a chance to celebrate their liberator. Julius II had named himself in honor of the great Roman general, Julius Caesar. The Pope reckoned himself a modern-day Caesar and made his triumphant entrance into Bologna in suitable style, being carried about like a Roman noble of old. His lackeys distributed coins bearing his face, struck to commemorate the day he freed Bologna from its oppressive overlords. The people of Bologna met the Pope with unbridled enthusiasm. They may not have loved the Pope, but they were glad to be alive. The city was safe once again. Nobody on that day in November was happier than the once exiled members of the Malvezzi and Mariscotti clans. Their families had been killed on the orders of the Bentevoglio, and now they were in Bologna once again, 
Soon it would be time to serve the national dish of Renaissance Italy, revenge. The procession of Julius was a day of happiness for all in Bologna, everyone except for the sullen knights of France. They were angry at having been cheated of the chance to plunder the city, to hold its wealthy hostage for extortionate ransoms, and to have their way with its women. Crowds of commoners came to cheer Julius as he proceeded through the city. So too came the nobles of Bologna to kiss the ring and ingratiate themselves to his new administration. Among these nobles was our other duelist, the tall and strong Hugo Pepoli. Back then, when he doffed his cap to the exiles, he could still boast a full head of fine hair. Hugo was one of the counts of Castiglione. This was a small fortress town on the border between Florence and Bologna. He can only have felt trepidation at the coming of the Pope. The Popoli family had been allies with the Bentivoglio. Now the city was in the hands of those who hated them. Men like Hercules Marascotti, who had barely survived the slaughter of his own family at the hands of the Bentivoglio and their cronies. Men in whose hearts burned an unquenchable desire for righteous vengeance. Would the red dagger of vendetta come looking for Hugo Popoli? No. Hugo was protected by his uncle Gerard Rangoni, a man the Pope fully supported. Gerard was also a distant cousin and bitter political rival of Guido Rangoni. Like his cousin Guido, Gerard was born in Modena, a small city that stood uncomfortably in Bologna's shadow. Pope Julius was no fool. He knew the people of Bologna held no real enthusiasm for his rule. To maintain control of the city, Julius needed a powerful ally in the nearby city of Modena. The Bentivoglio would be back, he knew that. To combat them, the Pope would need a leader that could raise an army in Modena, and he settled on Gerard to be this man. To pacify the people of Bologna to his rule, and snuff out any desire for the return of the Bentivoglio, Pope Julius did many things to change life in Bologna. One change he sought to make was to beautify it, and when trying to think of what would make an appropriate art piece for the city, he had the famous artist Michelangelo make a giant bronze statue for the Bolognese to admire. A giant bronze statue of none other than Pope Julius II himself. If humility was a Christian virtue, then someone had forgot to tell the Pope. The statue had one hand raised in benediction to the people of the city as a reminder of the deliverance they had received from their liberator. The other hand bore a sword, a mute warning to the people of Bologna of what would happen if they were to welcome back the Bentivoglio. The Pope had not forced the Bentivoglio from the city on his own, though. He was also beholden to the King of France. The taking of Bologna was also supposed to provide a place where Pope Julius could host the King of France for a high-level summit between these two powerful leaders. But it was not to be. The Pope was apprehensive of the growing power of France in northern Italy. His apprehensions only intensified when King Louis reminded the Pope that he had the Bentivoglio under French protection and Louis could return them to Bologna anytime he pleased. Why did Louis troll the Pope in this way? Put simply, the French were angry that the Pope was such an ingrate. They had saved his life some 25 years before when a previous Pope tried to have Julius killed. They had backed his efforts to become Pope. Once he sat upon St. Peter's throne, they helped him increase the power of the papacy. And yet they were aware that he was jealous of their growing Italian empire and was looking for ways to undermine it. Pope Julius II now began to worry over his safety. 
King Louis had the best army in Europe camped on the doorstep of the papal lands. And Louis also had the Ventavoglio in his pockets with their legion of invisible supporters in Bologna. Certainly there would be many among them willing to put a dagger in his back or poison in his wine. Now a would-be Caesar could not very well admit to being afraid for his life. So Pope Julius began to complain about the air in Bologna, saying it was very bad. Under the cover of this excuse, Julius beat a hasty retreat away from Bologna and back toward Rome. He left Bologna in the hands of a papal administration that was corrupt even by the incredibly lax moral standards of the Renaissance Church. The papal administration in Bologna was so hated that people who had once dreamed of the Bentivoglio being forced out of the city now pined for their return. The Bentivoglio may have been gone from the city, but they were still receiving letters from their friends within the city, letting them know that people wanted them to return. Guinevere Sforza Bentivoglio, the matriarch of the family, was especially enticed by these rumors. If King Louis of France considered the Bentivoglio his puppets, he may have been right about Giovanni Bentivoglio, the easygoing patriarch of the family. His formidable wife Guinevere was no one's puppet. While it's an exaggeration to say that she wore the hose in the family, she did exert an unusual level of influence over family affairs for a wife. Willful and possessing the violent temper of the Sforza family, Guinevere had done much to guide the policy of Bologna in the second half of the 15th century. Like all the women of the great families, she had sought out artists and writers and other creatives to give her court the level of intellectual flair appropriate for the court of Bologna. Unlike the other famous ladies of great families, she ruthlessly suppressed the Bentivoglio's opponents in Bologna. In this, she was similar to her famous cousin, Caterina Sforza, the famed Tigress of Forlì, whom we will talk about in greater depth in a future episode. When Guinevere and Giovanni discovered a plot in 1488 by some members of the Malvezzi family to assassinate the Bentivoglio and take control of the city, she pushed for a complete revenge against the entire Malvezzi family. It did not matter whether individuals were complicit or not. Giovanni reluctantly agreed to this policy. Cronies of the Bentivoglio murdered almost the entire Malvezzi clan from its great patriarch down to its toothless babes. The severity of this response did much to shift opinion against the Bentivoglio family in Bologna. Giovanni would later regret this choice as we can see 13 years later in 1501. That was when the forces of Cesare Borgia were on the cusp of attacking the city. As mentioned, when Borgia was rampaging near Bologna, there was a plot by people inside the city to seize a gate and open it for him. The men wanting to do this were members of the Matascotti family. Giovanni wanted to achieve the impossible for a Bentavoglio patriarch to die of old age. His father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather had all been murdered by Bolognese. Knowing that vengeance begets vengeance, he had always sought a moderate rule over Bologna. But his wife Guinevere was a Sforza, and to a Sforza it was better to kill a thousand innocents than to let a single guilty man go free. So back in 1501, Giovanni Bentivoglio had tried to keep the Matascotti plot a secret from Guinevere. He knew how she would respond. Unfortunately for Giovanni, his wife's lover found out about the plot and told her of it. Giovanni only wanted to punish the four men directly implicated in the plot. If he thought Guinevere was going to be satisfied with that, he had another thing coming. 
Guinevere was sure other members of the Matascotti family were involved. She needed to make sure all of the guilty ones were killed. It was not so much a guilty until proven innocent as it was a kill them all and let God sort them out. Guinevere summoned her equally ruthless son, Hermes. She convinced him to do what his father lacked the stones for, to make sure all of their enemies were dead. One night, Hermes gathered a group of the most wicked cutthroats he could find. He sent one detachment to make sure the gates of the city stayed shut. He led the rest on a murderous rampage throughout Bologna that left nearly 300 dead. When morning came, almost the entire Matascotti clan lay dead or dying in the streets, along with anyone connected to them by marriage or business. She was pleased to know that anyone who might be guilty was dead. Giovanni was horrified, but he did not punish his son. Thus, Guinevere was no pushover. No king and no pope was going to tell her what to do. And what she wanted to do was to return to Bologna. She was 67 years old and in failing health. Guinevere knew she did not have much life left in front of her. She simply wished to finish her days in the country house that she loved so much just outside of Bologna. A wish that Pope Julius refused time and time again. When the Pope started making plans to leave the city, she called upon her grandson Guido, as well as her sons Hermes and Hannibal, to raise an army strong enough to take back Bologna. She would pay for it by selling off all her jewelry and all her other worldly possessions. For the bad son Hermes Bentivoglio, the choice was easy. He had nothing to lose and everything to gain. It also offered the chance for a pleasant bit of mayhem. His older brother Hannibal had a trickier decision. Hannibal was married to a sister of the powerful Duke of Ferrara. In early 1507, this duke was closely allied with Pope Julius. The duke was giving shelter to Hannibal's wife and his many children and protecting them from Hannibal's enemy. But the pull to return home was too strong for Hannibal to resist. The Bentavoglio boys began recruiting from around Mantua. Their mother helped them to find troops around Milan as well, where the sports name commanded great respect. Upon hearing of this, Pope Julius put a price on each of the brothers' heads. 4,000 ducats if brought to him alive, or 2,000 ducats dead. Roughly equivalent to $20 million in modern currency. He also promised forgiveness and a chance to return home to any exiles that rid him of these troubles of brother. For Guido, it was never a choice. As soon as he heard of the Pope's plan to leave, he began raising troops. Though it would anger his overlord, the Duke of Ferrara, Guido's ultimate duty was to restore his family to Bologna. By the end of March, he and the other Bentavoglio allies in the area around Modena managed to assemble a force of 4,000 men. The brothers came with another 2,000 men and joined their allies at Guido's castle of Spilamberto, on the border between Modena and Bologna. Then they prepared to invade Bolognese territory. Guido became the leader of one of the divisions of the army, with thousands of men at his command. As he crossed the river from his ancestral domain and led his troops into Bolognese territory, his mind must have run with a thousand anxieties. Yet he was smart enough to know that the campaign to retake Bologna turned upon a single question. What would the people of Bologna do when he and the Bentavoglio brothers approached the walls of the city? Would they revolt and open the gates of the city, or would they take arms and guard the ramparts? 
a hundred miles to the west, an ailing old woman who longed to end her days in the country home she loved, clung to life a little bit longer and wondered the same thing. presentation of the first installment of this story, Stephen. And um, I got one question for you before we can move anywhere else in our discussion of what we just uh, what we just heard. Are we going to leave Mancino of Bologna as a footnote in this story? Oh, man, we cannot do that. We cannot leave Mancino. He'd come back from the grave and kill us, whether we were on a <laughs> horse or not. <laughs> Hey, man, maybe he read Morazzo's How to Fight Somebody on Horseback. <laughs> he probably was doing it. Yeah. Morazzo might have cribbed his notes off of encounters of the of the notes from the encounter with uh, Mancino. He might have. So, Mancino Bologna is kind of a badass. I mean, there's yeah. no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This dude is one of the coolest characters that I think mm-hmm. we found in our in our research. Um. So let's just kind of go through some of his timeline up to the point of where we're at in the story. So, I so think that way we have a little bit of background. He's the condottieri as we wish all the condottieri were. He's simple and he's badass. Yeah, for sure. So he kind of starts out in the pay of the Sforza, serving Milan. And right? right about the time when, you know, things are... Starting, to, starting to get yeah, starting to get a little a little iffy when they're not sure if the French are going to come down, you know the the um, Borgias are wreaking havoc as much as they they can, and um, I mean things are still relatively peaceful, but they're about to just explode. But then something happens, we don't know what, and he gets kicked out of service with the Sforza, so he's no longer serving Milan. And he's just out and about, and you know. So my take on this is he was at a duel, and he saw some guys dueling, and he found some guy to challenge to a duel. It's like, I don't have a job, I have a sword. Let's fix this problem. Yeah, no, for sure. And it it turns out to be like this really badass duel because he fights this duel in front of the Marquis of Mantua, Giovanni Bentivoglio, Ludovico Sforza, um, Alfonso Dieste. Like we're talking about like heavy hitters. All in the Northern big heavy Italy. hitters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's everybody. That is <laughs> everybody, that is everybody there. Right. So he fights this duel against this guy, Giovanni Bernardino um, Caracciolo. 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 And he wins. And so this is kind of like some gladiatorial sports sort of thing where he's fighting this duel <laughs> surrounded by like all these nobles. Right. Um, probably most of their court and most of their generals and most of their condottieri. And, you know, I mean, you probably have a, a nice little amphitheater full while he's fighting this battle. 
but he gets rewarded with some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, and this was not a cheapy battle. It's like, uh, Caracciolo did not just surrender after taking like one little itty-bitty wound. I mean, according to the account we have, it's four wounds he takes, so he's probably near death yeah. when he finally is surrenders to uh, Mancino de Bologna. So this is a real earned victory, not a cheapie. And I guess that's probably why um, he's so heavily rewarded. Yeah, and so... In this, uh, Ludovico Sforza gives him a jupon and arms him as a knight, which, yeah. you know, Whew. obviously increases his stage. I mean, that's a huge thing. That's I mean, just a giant jump up. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's it's like if somebody in one of those NBA, um, have, you know, where they, like, have the free shooting competition, it'd be literally like somebody from one of those winning one of those free shooting competitions and the team signing him on the spot to a contract <laughs> as a starter for the team. I mean... That's yeah. how big of a comeuppance this is in the world for Mancino. Yeah, I mean, from this point forward, this dude is a knight. I mean, that's, even from a class perspective, I mean, you're talking about going from, you know, unrecognized nobility to recognized nobility. Right, and this is a, and he's not just rewarded by Ludovico Sforza. He gets stuff from the Marquis, the Marquis of Mantua. He gets stuff from Giovanni Bentavoglio. I mean, everybody is impressed with this guy. So he really just moved up in the world i mean you know basically they're like they're bidding against each other it's like shark tank right they're yeah, like, yeah hey you come with me man I'm, i'll make you a captain you know i'll pay you this much and then finally sports is like i win i will make you a knight nobody can beat that <laughs> yeah so he awesome. becomes a knight to the top dog in northern italy at the time ludovico sforza yep so I mean, we can imagine this being just a tremendous event, obviously. And talk about going from rags to riches. You're fired from your job right. as, as a man in your military right. career. And right. then the next thing you know, you fight a duel and you're a knight. So um, so then the next real kind of like historical data point that we have with Mancino is him fighting another duel. <laughs> <laughs> because this is it, a guy from Milan. All right. <laughs> yeah. So we have Morgante from Milan. Um, and... This duel is pretty weird because there's this this kind of coincides with a time when Milan was courting the French. So uh, Charles was about to come into Italy, and Ludovico had pretty much committed himself that he was not going to try to contend with the French and keep them from crossing the Alps. Right now, this caused a lot of drama. Um, and we'll talk about this in future episodes for sure because there are a lot of characters here that we want to talk about um, where his cousin, Katarina Sforza, um, was on the other side of this coin and trying to protect her assets and she's in, in close communication with Giovanni Bentivoglio who's married to her cousin and uh, they are sort of they're trying to decide what they're going to do, whether or not they're going to side with the French or whether or not they're going to side with the Pope. And, uh, or I guess just the general <laughs> Italian sphere at this point, because everybody's trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do if right. the French invade. Um, and Katerina actually decides that she will not side with the French. Um, so the fact that she hires somebody to fight a duel, because that's, really what happens here is she hires Mancino to fight a duel with this guy, Morgante, and then Mancino drags this guy back to Katarina Sforza and presents him to Katarina Sforza. 
Huh. What what yeah. her motivation was for that? Yeah, it's it's pretty trippy. I mean, I don't know if it's related to that. I mean, I, unfortunately, as much as I searched, I could not find the historical details to really provide more information about what's going on at this time. The interesting thing is, is if this were like months later, it would make perfect sense because months later, Katarina Swartz's husband is murdered. And then she sends out a bunch of people to go find these guys and bring them back to her. Okay, let's not go down that rabbit hole. Katarina Swartz has an amazingly interesting story. we okay, got to stay focused right. on this all one right, here. All right, we'll, we'll stop. We'll stop. We'll stop there. But yes, what I'm saying is... It totally makes sense. It would make more sense if it was it a few months later. It would make way more right. sense. Yeah. We'll leave it at that. Leave it at that, yeah. Okay, so he fights this other duel, captures this dude, drags him back to Katarina Swartz, and we can imagine she has this guy tortured and murdered because she's Katarina Katarina Swartz. Swartz. <laughs> 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 we'll leave it at that. Yep. All right, so then he gets sent to the Eight of Pisa in 1497, which at the time, Florence is fighting a war with Pisa, and our friend Niccolo Machiavelli is heavily involved in this fighting that's happening with the Pisans, which is also super interesting. The never-ending never rivalry between those two cities. Yeah, absolutely. So then our next data point is when he's in uh, Pistoia. Right. Is it, yeah? And, uh, yeah. Yeah, the Pistoians, they're having... There's a, a local lord, and there's a faction that is loyal to the Pope and the Borgia. And there's a Republican faction that comes up and they decide that they are going to fight a civil war. Of course, Florence gets involved, and they hire Mancino, or they request that Mancino Bologna come down and help out the Pistoians. And, uh, yeah, um, so let's, let's kind of talk about what, what happens here. Right, and I think that's Cesare Borgia was coming, was either shortly after this, was actually invading Pistoia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's making his push into the Romagna to start establishing his his great kingdom. So they make him the captain general. So that's that's the big general, the head of everything, head of all their military, and uh, they give him how much? Forty thousand ducats. Dude, and so forty thousand ducats is an astronomical sum. So if you want to compare to modern money. I'd like to say that a ducat is about $10,000. So they give him the equivalent to, what is that, 40 million bucks? <laughs> and he hires 1,500 guys. Now, generally speaking, to hire guys might cost about two to four ducats each. So Mancino de Bologna makes out big on this deal. <laughs> he does, yeah. Yep, he, he absolutely <laughs> fleeces them. And I, you know, it's it's just the craziest thing. Uh, I hope that that number is real. I hope I hope that's not just like some weird. A typo. Yeah. Yeah, it could just be. A I mean, typo. maybe that's supposed to be Florence. I, I don't know. <laughs> maybe. I don't know what the conversion rate is though, but all prices are almost always represented in ducats. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just pretty ridiculous. But he ends yeah. up winning. He he ends up securing uh, Pistoia for this uh, 
Um, they are the, uh, let me do this here real quick. Cancellieri. There you go. Yeah. 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 So that's, uh, that's what we get from that. And, uh, really that kind of makes him a thorn in Cesare Borgia's side because Borgia's ultimate objective is Bologna. Right. So he needs it. He gets all these little podunk towns, but he doesn't have one legitimate city to call a capital that really, you know, is can he can be proud of. Yeah, I guess we should call him Count Valentino right now. Okay. All right. Call him yeah. Count Valentino. All right. Yeah, because sure. that's 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 what he styled himself as. But everybody knows him as Cesare Borgia. Yeah, but the cool thing is. This is this might be going too deep into this, but just a, a cool little aside. At this point, Machiavelli and Leonardo da Vinci are both working with Cesare Borgia at this time, mm-hmm. together. Yep. Um, and da Vinci's going around and basically spying for Borgia, while Machiavelli is devising strategic plans for Borgia. Right. So. Borgia um, was very persuasive, apparently. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about a couple of those characters in later episodes, too. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. On to, back to our buddy Mancino da Bologna. Yeah, so... All and, right. And it, it ties right back into our friend Cesare Borgia, because now Borgia actually makes his attempts on Bologna. And so Mancino goes from Pistoia to Bologna and returns to the service of Giovanni Bentivoglio. Um, where he helps to defend uh, the city of Bologna when Cesare Borgia starts approaching with his army. You want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, so this is the second, this is his second attempt to, Cesare Borgia's second attempt on Bent, on uh, Bologna. And so he, that was, uh, again, the crown jewel he wanted to be his capital for the Duke, Duchy of Romagna. Um, because Bologna was a cosmopolitan city, so the kind of city that artists and basically interesting court people would flock to and Cesare Borgia in order to maintain the status needed to have a court of interesting people around him so Bologna was was just that enticing of a target Um, so in this case he is planning on making his attack on Bologna and it doesn't go very well and then we have the big conspiracy against Cesare Borgia where his generals start to realize that once Borgia is finished with them, he's going to kill them off and add their domains to his Duchy of Romagna. So they decide to beat him to the punch, rebel against him, uh, along with the Bentavoglio of Bologna, and they form a pretty weak little coalition that gets Cesare Borgia off the back of the Bentavoglio and gets him worried about maintaining control of the lands he has. So... Then he finds himself without a contract. Right. So he gets reduced down to 40 dudes <laughs> to watch this bastion that guards the church of San Michel and Bosco, whatever so special about that, that we, we don't know. And then, yes, then he straight has no job and no work. Yeah. But, and then he ends up up in Ravenna. Which is pretty interesting because there's something that's going on right now where after Cesare Borgia fails in taking um, 
Bologna, he starts right. focusing to the east and starts gobbling up towns and cities in the east. So he goes into the really the heart of Romagna and starts going after places like Cesena. And uh, this is where he ends up pulling off his great coup where he invites all of the uh, the Orsini to come visit him, right? Yeah, so that's uh, that's actually a little before this. So that's actually on New Year's Day or New Year's Eve of 1502. Um, the coalition against Cesare Borgia collapses uh, because all of these people are all just so selfish and they've all betrayed him, so none of them can really trust each other. So they all try to get back into Borgia's good graces, and he's like, yeah, bros, don't worry about it. We can all be friends again. Hey, I'm, I'm going to be throwing a bitchin' party here in Senegalia. Why don't you guys come check it out, and we'll talk about plans for the new year. And they're, they all come down to Senegalia, and, um, well, that doesn't go very good for them. He captures them, and uh, Mikelotto, his assassin, plays them a violin solo. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Gotcha. His violin yeah. solo was so good that it carried them unto death. Yeah, so, but I, I guess, but this part, here in October 15th. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, like, sorry. Like, at, at this point, you have a, an army, you have resistance against Cesare Borgia. Right, so they're immediately, once, so Borgia's gone. So Borgia's dad dies that summer, and Borgia's laid up with malaria or something like that. Um, so once Borgia's dad is no longer in the picture, he doesn't have the unlimited funds of the papacy to back his campaigns anymore. And basically everybody starts leaving Borgia's control. Like all the cities that he's just conquered say, we don't want you anymore. Or almost all of them. Yeah, so here we've got our friend Pendolfo Malatesta. Right. Who really kind of, on, on the behest of the Venetians, goes on a spree of gobbling up as much territory as he possibly can. Right. And he's married to a Bentavoglio. So he is, or he may actually be the son of a Bentavoglio, but he's intimately connected with the Bentavoglio family of Bologna. And it's so, from here that we have another awesome contract. <laughs> Ridiculous. 4,000 ducats. Yeah, compared to, to the other contracts that we end yeah. up seeing at this time, I mean it's like double. I don't know what it is about Mancino, just like, and he maybe just that's gets why the he, money. yeah, maybe that's why he's out of a contract so much, you know? Because it's just like his, he's like, listen, I was knighted by Ludovico Sforza. <laughs> <laughs> You're not getting it. Mancino for cheap. <laughs> I've I've had a forty thousand dollar ducat <laughs> contract. What do you have that? possibly entice me to work for you <laughs> right. right right okay so, so yeah so he's basically undoing papal influence in romagna so he's taking out he's taking them out of romini and he's taking them out of sant'arcangelo and then later he is taking them out of cesena and each of these cases so well at least in ravenna he's probably working with Venice, who had a, a deep vested interest in gaining control over Venice because it was a port city on the Adriatic. Uh, but then he's working with the local lords in Cesena to take them back. So the traditional, one of the traditional big families of Cesena. Yep. 
so then he goes with later on um, he kind of finds his way into the service of Bartolomo de Alviano who's always going to be a character from now on a very yes. big player he's um, a we, he's big big player yeah so um, he ends up joining him in an action against the Medici um, and well I guess uh, in his action in favor of the Medici against in the, favor of the Medici. right yeah so this is this is about the time when um, uh, Piero de Medici gets removed from Florence and uh, and so the the Medici end up hiring a condottieri army to come back and try to retake uh, Florence. Right. So that's that's why we have a Medici army attacking Florence for people who are <laughs> right. So they, yeah, the Medici had gone <laughs> right. So Florence had gone and turned into a republic. <coughs> yep. And kicked kicked the Medici out. Uh, the Medici were not necessarily fond of that idea. Yeah. So. They end up going. But then he they... changes sides, and immediately starts working for the Florentines to fight the Pisans. Because, I mean, money yeah. is money, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's in the command of two hundred infantry, and somewhere amongst all of this, I, I guess an interesting note is Pietro Monti is on one of these two sides. At right. This point, right. Right. So we know that Pietro Monti is is sort of here, and he's engaged on I can't, I can't remember which side he's on in this entire struggle i think it's on the side of the medici but i i think he's on the side of the bet i think he's on the side of the of florence of the, yeah of the i don't republic? know if the republic or not though yeah but he's definitely not on pisa's side no 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 nobody sure. was ever on pisa's side <laughs> pisa was on pisa's side and that was about it the fact that they survived is just like one of it's those things kind in history of amazing. that you're just like, wow, you guys yeah. were just the thorn in everybody's ass, but yeah. you survived. So, yeah, yeah. good on you. Good yeah. on you. Couldn't make a tower stand straight, but damn, they sure made it tough to rule their city. Yeah, so when he, he decides to switch sides and fight against the Medici in favor of the Florentines, he gets right. beaten and captured. Right. Yeah. Or maybe he gets captured and beaten. And then he gets freed, and he goes to the pay of the Florentines against the Pisans. And at this point, he probably would be fighting alongside um, uh, Pietro, Pietro Monti. Monti. Yes. Because is this, if am I remembering this correctly? Is this when Ercole Bentivoglio? Yes, I believe this is Ercole Bentivoglio, Pietro Monti, and Mancino de Bologna all having their party together. Yeah. So this is actually yes. pretty cool. Do we want to talk about this, or do we want to save this for later? Go for it. Let's go. Okay. Let's talk All right. About it. So this siege is super interesting because this is uh, Niccolo Machiavelli's grand, grand vision for how the Florentine army should be conducted. So Niccolo Machiavelli is is actually sort of the Florentine advisor that's in charge of this military expedition. Ercole Bentivoglio is the uh, head condottieri. This is one of Guido. We think this is one of Guido Rangoni's very first sort of conducts. Um, we know that he was in Bentivoglio's service at this time, and basically every Bentivoglio, whether it's Annibali, uh, Hermes, or um, uh, Al Alessandro, Alessandro. Uh, yeah. are here. Like, all of them are here. So to to make the, the little leap that Guido Rangone would have been here as a young man is not too far-fetched. So right. 
But there's also this other great captain uh, named Pietro Monti, who is very famous at this point, who's also at this battle. And so they use uh, Ferrari's cannons, and they blast down a hole in the wall of Pisa, and they send forward their forlorn hope, which is led by Pietro Monti. Pietro Monti gets inside of the walls and fights this heroic action, but his men basically can't get through, so he has to pull back. So Ercole hesitates, <laughs> finally sends in the second wave. They can't get through, and then they basically abandon the siege. And it's at this point that Niccolo Machiavelli, observing all of this, writes a book called The Art of War. It's all because of this battle that Niccolo Machiavelli writes The Art of War. And it's basically about how stupid it is to hire condottieri to do things because they cost <laughs> way too much money and they're totally ineffective. Because he had every badass condottieri that you could possibly imagine at his control. And they did jack shit. <laughs> and the Pisans yet again survive. Yep. But the Pisans were good at that. They, I mean, they even beat the French, I think, when the French tried to storm them. I mean, the Pisans were... They were yeah. tough bastards. People, they they the, really were. Yeah, the thing about medieval or Renaissance warfare, it was really hard to take cities that were determined to not be taken. And, and Pisa just was like... Pisa oh, yeah. was determined, yeah. I mean, you know, Giovanni might not be able to fight in the field, but if he's defending his town and he has a gun, he's going to take you with him, man. And that's just... You know. I I can imagine you know Filippovati there, you know yeah. we can we can potentially place Filippovati in this in this situation on the side of Pisa, yep. Um, you know, and it's it, you know maybe maybe Vati just encompasses the the peace and spirit. Maybe there's something to it. That could be. That could yeah. be. That's pretty cool. All right, so then that really puts us up to our timeline. So we're contemporary with where our story's at right now. That's right. So now we're with Mancino leaving with the Bentavoglio, and I guess we will find out later what happens to our friend Mancino de Bologna. All right, Stephen, so now that we've covered Mancino and kind of wrapped that up, let's talk about Julius II. Are you sure you want to talk about Julius II? <laughs> I mean, can we not talk about Julius II? <laughs> I don't think we can. I don't think we can really cover the Renaissance without talking about Pope Julius II. Julius... I mean, it's just, he's the Pope that Machiavelli thought was the great one. So I guess that tells you everything you need to know about Pope Julius II. He is the embodiment of Machiavellians. He is there to incarnate. He is. Yes. Whatever and... you do, do it big and bold. I mean, Machiavelli... Right or wrong doesn't matter. That's right. Machiavelli was actually at the, uh, the taking of Bologna. So... That big sort of entourage of cardinals and everything like that. Oh, I did not know that. It included Niccolo Machiavelli, huh? That's right, yeah. Niccolo Machiavelli was in uh, Julius's entourage and uh, was sort of his close confidant through the whole thing. He actually has documentation of, of various aspects in his, um, his letters of uh, hanging out with Julius. Wow, and, that's fantastic, yeah. man. Yeah, so Nick Machiavelli just keeps showing up in today's episode. I don't, <laughs> I don't know why, but you know, he's everywhere. So well, he wrote a lot, and that's a good way to get remembered at the time is to write a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, and be just a sort of clever dark bastard. Yeah. Um, 
which Julius would really appreciate. So let's talk yes. about Julius. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Julius. So the question we really have to ask ourselves, Pope Julius II, villain or hero? Absolutely a villain. See, I got to say you're wrong there, man. Yeah, you know, I mean, let me just kind of put it this way. First of all, Julius II was probably the biggest hypocrite that you can possibly imagine, right? I mean, we have Julius as a cardinal going up to France after he falls out with the Borgia. Actually, after the Borgia try to poison him. <laughs> yeah, I have falling out with friends. They don't usually try to poison me. So he goes up to France after, you know, spending some time in Florence and decides to go up to uh, to France and tries to convince Charles that, you know, it it is time to bring the rapture upon the Pope and believes that he's going to bring the incarnation of Revelation into Italy to weed out the evil that is there. Of course, later on, every single lord in Italy that even remotely aligns themselves with the French, Julius decides to remove from power. But that's when he's the Pope. It's different. He's when he's not the Pope, Pope, he's he needs to get rid of the Pope. And when he's the Pope, he needs to get rid of the French. It's as simple as that. Yeah, but the thing is, I, okay, all right. So you know, let's let's kind of let's highlight here our portion of the story that we just covered. I mean, Giovanni Bentivoglio. You know, the the Pope was so concerned about the fact that Giovanni Bentivoglio was aligning himself with the French and paid for French protection when Cesare Borgia was literally at their doorstep, right? And and we know that Pope Julius II hates the Borgia. Like, literally hates the... I mean, for good reason, right? Right, uh, they right. They tried to I poison mean, him. He, with, with a passion beyond yeah. whatever his feelings for the Bentivoglio are, right? Yeah. So the so, Bentivoglio had one giant problem. What is that? They were in Bologna, and Pope Julius II wanted Bologna. Well, period. End of story. I mean, he technically had Bologna. It's not like they were completely operating as an independent asset. They were basically independent, man. I mean, they yeah. were. Bologna was nominally part of, like, the papal states. I don't think they were kicking any cash to Rome, and they were basically setting their own tune. They were even making their own foreign policy, which drove him crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... All right. So, I actually... I have something that actually kind of backs up your point here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for making my argument for me. <laughs> so, there's there's actually... A, there's a, a, a really great uh, bit of this um, in uh, uh, Christine Shaw's Julius II, The Warrior Pope, where she... Oh, you've discussed that for a sec. Amazing book, by the way. If you're interested in the podcast, read Dr. Christine Shaw's book. It's on Julius Caesar. Or Julius Caesar. Julius II. It's awesome. Anyway. Yes, I, I second that. I also, you know, I mean, while we're at it, let's just say read all of her books. Read all of her books. Yeah. yeah. She's an amazing through, writer. Through all of our research, I've gotten, um, you know, the Italian Wars that she wrote with uh, Michael Mallet and Barons and Castellans, which is also fantastic and just provides so much awesome information so she's an incredibly valuable resource so uh the the point that i want to point out here is she mentions the fact that the bentivoglio 
built a cathedral next to the papal cathedral that was bigger. And so the real reason why Julius II was so jealous <laughs> is because Giovanni Bentivoglio had a bigger cathedral than him. Okay, that's totally, totally Julius II. Yeah. He had to be the biggest Italian in town, always. Every time. All right, so what's your counterpoint? <laughs> My counterpoint about him as a hero, it's very sure. simple. It's Italy. It's in the Renaissance. You've got one job when you take over the, the papacy or any chunk of land, and that is increase the size and stability of your holdings. If you have to lie, cheat, rob, steal to do that, that's the rules of the game. If you don't like it, you should have found another time to be born. And you know what? who does that? Who does that in spades? Pope Julius II. He takes a bankrupt, falling apart papal states. It's been ruined by the Borgia, who, who are both immoral and stupid. It's a bad combination. And their little thing that they've woven together through conquest falls apart like a house of cards in the face of a strong breeze once it doesn't have the trickle of papal money to support it anymore. Julius comes in there, he fixes the finances, he gets other people to do the fighting so that he can get stuff done with the limited papal resources, and he builds up the papal states uh, into a form that will essentially last for 350 years until the reunification of Italy. And may not like how he did it, but that was the game, man. Yeah, I mean, that's a... Uh... That's a pretty fair point, but, you know, my counterpoint to that would be that through the process of all of that, he basically ends the Renaissance in Italy. Because everybody, every every power, every place that he touches in Italy, every, every city, whether it's Padua, whether it's uh, Bologna, whether it's Ferrara, everything that he touches, whether it's Venice... You're talking about like heights of of cultural influence and development. Bologna was at its peak at this point, and after that, all of these cities, all these municipalities, all these city states are literally a shell of their former selves, and never reach again the heights or the level of power that they were in. He has a certain vampiric quality. I'll give you that. He does. <laughs> like <laughs> Italy goes. He's like the opposite very... of King Midas. Everything <laughs> yeah. I see turns to shit. Yeah, <laughs> Everything I touch turns to he's shit. He's absolutely yeah. Medusa. He's yeah. Medusa. Yeah, that's true. So one of the things that it's hard for us to recognize in the modern era is just how much more advanced Northern Italy was than everybody else in Europe at the time. Like we yeah. we kind of tend to think of. Italy is the sort of fun pizza pasta land where people talk with funny accents. Uh, but back then, Italy was the forefront maybe of the of civilization in the entire world. Yeah. I mean, the crazy thing is, and, and as we look at this from this perspective, you, like we think about France and, and the Holy Roman Empire as being these big players, the Papal States and the Spanish and things like that. But this actually really kind of is the point where those powers actually culminate into being greater than Italian city-states because before that, and really through the Italian Renaissance, most of these city-states had more financial and military resources than most of these countries. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know, and it's hard to imagine 
right? Yeah, like, like London wouldn't have even been one of would have been only a moderate sized city in northern Italy at the time. It'd been like, oh yeah, that's London. Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a nice sized little town over there. Right. I mean, these they dwarfed. I mean, except for Paris, they dwarfed all the other cities in Western Europe. They did, and and with their a lot of these republics or kingdoms, like if you think about Naples or Milan, um, right. or another republic like Venice, these guys had the military might where if they wanted to go toe-to-toe with the Holy Roman Empire, they could have. Like, mano y mano, they right. could have easily defeated the armies <laughs> of the Holy Roman Empire. And that's crazy to think about. It is. It is, especially before nationalism came around and was able to make those countries really work well, like we tend to think of countries. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah. How much that, power and money they had. They just had gobs and gobs of money. <laughs> yeah. Tremendous amounts of money. I mean, Venice basically, you know, is you know, this economic superpower that stretches across this maritime empire and it's just constantly growing and expanding and you know you know through this there's devastation for the venetians caused by julius <laughs> yeah which they never really recover from well if venice right? had just done what he told them to do they wouldn't have had this problem but i mean that's the thing you just can't cross julius he would he would cut off the nose to spite the face right and and what did the venetians do they hired they didn't they didn't put Julius's nephew in as a cardinal in the Veneto. So, that, so, so we're, since we're on the topic of why Julius was a hero, let's also talk about <laughs> the other duty of any Italian man at the time. You've got two jobs. You have increase your land holdings and make sure that your family has increased social stature and increased land holdings as well and pope julius made sure that in holding on to the vatican that he used it to push for his family to be put into high positions most notably his nephew francesco maria della rovere who found very few battles certainly in the beginning that he could not run from (laughs) but that is beside the point what he did was raise up the stature of his family in Italy, they were once just a poor little family in the Liguria, uh, in Liguria near Genoa, and they ended up becoming very powerful lords as a result of uh, his papacy and the papacy of his uncle Sixtus. Mm-hmm. So yeah. one more reason by which Julius is a hero. Counter that, my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Francesco Maria del Rovere, he's, um, he's quite the character, that one. Yeah. You know, a murderous bastard. <laughs> yeah, see, he combined, he's sort of like the opposite of Guido Rangoni, neither particularly honorable or effective. Yeah. Yep, yep. Completely dishonorable and completely ineffective. Just right. Just a warm body in charge of a large army. Yeah. Yep, but he eventually learned. He got, he, he got it over time. I guess you yeah. survive enough battles, you eventually figure out the crap. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, the one thing about it is, yeah, look, I get it, I get it. You got to put your family in the right place. You know, you've got to consolidate your lands, and you got to make them as strong as possible. 
But when you're when you're the Pope, you know, you would think that you would take the papal dominion and when you go on a crusade against the Borgia saying that you're going to make the papacy godly again and you are literally the least godly man <laughs> that you can possibly imagine. I mean, I don't I don't see where you're getting at because I mean, this guy I, I kind of I guess this really kind of culminates throughout my entire argument of him really just being a hypocrite um, is that he's, you know, there's scandalous rumors that he has a uh, a relationship with a, a fellow cardinal, Aladasi. Um, I but you know, rumors like that went around about everybody back then. Yeah, I mean that's fair. He has syphilis. <laughs> yes, again, who didn't, man? They didn't have uh, Netflix back then. What else were you gonna do? Yeah, yeah. <coughs> he's just a—he's a treacherous bastard. He's an absolutely treacherous bastard. He was—he was a treacherous bastard. This is yeah. true. Uh, but you know what he did do, and I forgot to bring this up earlier. Oh, yeah. He is responsible for the spreading of the Italian Renaissance to so many lands. So although he sucked the life out of cities like Bologna and Perugia and basically took them from their leading roles in culture and really actually kind of took Venice off this pinnacle too and mostly kind of kicked the stool out from underneath Italy, um, that forced a lot of Italians to go seek employment in other countries. And by doing so, they've spread the culture of Italy to the courts of France and to the streets of England, to Germany, and even most notably to Denmark, where um, the famous Italian fencing master Fabrice was employed uh, by the king of Denmark. Yeah, Christian, yeah. That's right. And uh, so... People like to talk about what a great master he was, but I've always been wondering if he was so great why he had to go to Denmark to get his money instead of staying in Italy mm. like uh, Capoferro did. But eh, what do I know? Well, I mean, if we look at it the way that we should, you know, is that by through his alliances, Julius basically invited everyone into Italy to take their chunk and take the wealth from Italy and bring it back to their countries, right? Bringing yeah. the French in, bringing the Germans in, bringing the Spanish in, like constantly working through these alliances to bring these outside powers in. And of course, what did they do? They just went around and they looted everything and, you know, basically took these cities, took their wealth, took their resources, took their riches, and took it out of Italy. So by the 1550s, by the, by the 1600s, Italy was pretty much, you know, despot. And, I, you know, if I was a fencing master, I'd be looking to Denmark or, like, if it was Tabasibo, <laughs> I'd be going to the French court from Bologna, which at that point was just a shell of its former self, to go teach fencing. So I completely Or understand. I suppose, like... Um... Uh, what was the name of the guy who went to England? I forget. Oh, are you... T um, is it Saviolo? Saviolo, yeah. So Saviolo, unfortunately, had to go all the way to England to get a job. Uh, when we're done, there's if we can link this in, there's this great recipe I'm going to try and find and read it out aloud, where the guy totally trash talks England and kind of like <laughs> lays the groundwork for how these Italians felt about having to leave Italy. <laughs> nice. Cool. Okay, so 
I want to wrap this up. There's another person from Denmark, <coughs> Erasmus, one of the, the famous uh, sort of um, humanist thinkers of the time. Uh, he wrote a fantastic satire uh, called Julius Exclusus. Right? right? And I want to read just a little bit of an excerpt from Julius Exclusus and kind of give people a background of this. Uh, it is definitely worth reading. Um, you can find a PDF of it and uh, I, I highly recommend that you read all of it because it's hilarious. Um, it's great satire on par with the modern satire that we see today. It's, it's right up there. It's, it's excellent. Um, but he basically, Julius dies, spoiler alert, <clears throat> and he goes to heaven and he knocks on St. Peter's gate and St. Peter is like, hey, why are you knocking on my gate? And Julius is like, hey, don't you recognize me? I'm the Pope. And St. Peter's like, no, I don't recognize you, but let me see if you're in my book. And so he starts looking through his book and he's like, ah, oh, look, man, I'm sorry, but I don't see your name here. <laughs> you're not getting in. And so Julius is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm the Pope. I'm, I'm literally, I am, I am like St. Peter on earth. How could you tell me that you don't know who I am? And how, how are you not going to let me into heaven? And St. Peter's like, yeah, I'm sorry, dude. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the book of life right now. And <laughs> your name's not in it. So Julius, <laughs> Julius, his genius, his daemon, or his demon, if you want to go with the play on words here, um, and St. Peter have this dialogue. So you have this dialogue between three characters with Julius's demus, demon, or his daemon, and Julius himself, and then St. Peter. So that's where we kind of setting this up. So it picks up with this one point where Julius is talking to the fisherman, Peter, and he says, Ah, would to God you had seen me born aloft in Bologna, the horses and chariots and marching battalions, the galloping generals, the flaming torches, the pretty page boys, the streaming platters, <laughs> the pimp of bishops and glory of cardinals, the spoils of trophies and heaven-splitting cheers, and the blade of trumpet and thunder of cannon and largesse flung to the crowd, and I, born aloft, head and author of all, Caesar and Scipio were nothing to me. St. Peter says, Oh, enough of your triumphs, you baggard soldier. You suppress in hatefulness even those pagans, you who, while claiming to be the most holy father in Christ, have caused thousands of Christian soldiers to be killed for your own personal advantage, who have created only new legions of the dead, and who never by words or deeds brought one single soul to Christ by the bowels of the Father. O oh, you worthy vicar of the Christ who sacrificed himself for the good of all mankind, you, to preserve yourself, who, a cursed skin, have driven to the, their deaths entire populations. Nice. Yeah. So that's from Erasmus. And Erasmus actually knew Julius. So Erasmus oh. was in Bologna. No he was in cool. Bologna. Yeah, he was in Bologna, and when Julius came into Bologna, Erasmus was so stricken by his experience with Julius and with what had happened in the city of Bologna, he wrote Julius Exclusive. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Yeah. What a great find that is. So, um, yeah. So from there, 
Let's let's leave that at Julius because he's going to come through in our story. He is yes. he is a centerpiece of our story for quite a while. But um, there's another thing that we wanted to talk about, and that is sword and small buckler. Okay, let's do it. Love the right. sword and small buckler. So for this bit, we decided that we were going to talk about Manchiliano and his student, the author of the Anonymous Bullet. <laughs> <laughs> or the author of the Anonymous Bolognese and his student, Antonio Manchiliano. Ah, very nice. Yes. <laughs> I love it. So um, do you want to kick this off, Stephen, since I did a lot of talking there? Yeah. All right. So let's talk sword and small buckler. So sword and small buckler is a very distinct Bolognese art. Uh, this is different than sword and buckler. So sword and small buckler is to be fought with the practice sword. And it, this is how you begin learning to fight with a sword, according to the masters. Um, <clears throat> and it's, um, it's pretty straightforward. It's basically, to anybody who's done fencing, it's you're going to make a cut. You're going to try to draw the other guy into attacking the line that you just left. So knock rising, according to you dirty German fencers, if you're listening. And you try to then do something with their weapon when they, make, when they attack into that knock rising and then take, get your free attack. So classic provoker, taker, hitter stuff for you dirty Meyerists. Um, the advantage of the sword and the small buckler is that the sword, the small buckler protects the hand. So you can't really do a lot of sword actions if your hand is exposed because it's really easy to poke somebody in the hand. I mean, ridiculously easy. But once that hand is protected, it opens up a whole bunch of fencing options of different kinds of cuts you can throw so you can you can come in with a just straight powerful mandrito a straight downright blow or you can come in with a twirling kind of tramazoni that sort of deceives your opponent's timing to try to lure them into chasing that knock rising uh, or you can do my particular favorite which is kind of sell with your body like you're going to come in straight down with a chop to their head and then swing that thing underneath you um, so that it basically like you're a wind like you're a windmill and then bring the tip up in front and enter with a thrust that mm. one is always super fun otherwise known as the montante thrust um, which appears in both uh, the work of Anonimo Bolognese and his student uh, Antonio Manchalino <laughs> yeah it also appears in Pietro Monti because that's basically Monti's system right is the Lovata but does he do a, a punta levada, or is he just? I thought he was just a straight levada. No, he yeah he does the punta. So oh, yeah. okay, I he, missed he that. He likes to mutate right. that into uh, into a thrust. Yeah. It's a pretty fun thrust to do. It is, yeah. Yeah, I agree. One of my favorite sword and buckle actions is even better to do on the retreat. So you get somebody into attacking you, and then you back up, gives you space to make that, uh, make that montante thrust, a windmilling thrust right to their face, and tends to arrest your opponent's motion. Yeah, you know what I was thinking the entire time I was reading through the Anonimo and really kind of working through these plays? You know, I, I had I had the fortune of, of taking my sword and buckler class and saying, hey, we're going to take a little field trip here <laughs> cool. from Manchialino and, and start looking at the Anonimo um, and going through some of these plays. And 
as I was going through this, man, I literally all I was thinking to myself the entire time was my favorite quote from the Anonymo, which is, "Also, you must know, if you find your enemy in a wide guard, you must work to bring their sword in presence. If he has his sword in presence, then you must, by means of fainting, make him put his sword in a wide guard that allows you to control the line." such that the sword will point away from your person and off to the side of your body. And so you will then be able to perform whatever action you wish. Yep. That's and literally, literally all of this. Yeah. Everything is just how you go about. So basically, it starts if they have their sword in presence, you, you basically gain control of their sword in some way so that you can feint and yeah. force them to move their point, and then that lets you go do something else. You either hit them or you... Just do the same thing on the other side, and again, and again, and again, and again. Yeah, so it's either a feint or a beat, right? Like, I mean, some of the things that I noticed, some of the sort of tactical observations that I noticed as I was reading through this, is like if the opponent is in a low guard or a point forward guard, then it's usually a beat or a feint of some kind. You, most likely a beat um, is sort of the, the most common progression, and that's from Cotolonga Strata. If your opponent is in Cotolonga Strata, Gordia de Faccia or Porta de Ferro, um, right, because they've got their point online. And then if you're in a low guard, he also uses the falso, which is something we see a lot with Manchialino, right, where he throws mm -hmm. that falso to the hand in order to sort of proceed with his attacks and stuff like that. So that's something that I saw that was just like this really stark similarity between the two of them. Where it's, it's especially, I think it's like the fourth or fifth uh, Anonimo play where he throws the falso to the hand then cuts a traumatzone to the head so that way he or feints the traumatzone to the head so he can cut a reversal, and that's that is that Manchilino. sounds like Manchelino right there. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. Yeah, except he wouldn't. I don't think Manchelino ever targets the head and sword in small buckler, but otherwise it sounds textbook. Well, he does it in the offensive actions. So in the offensive actions from Cotolonga Alta, he goes oh, with a falso right. to the hand, right. Mandrito to the head, reversal to the head. And that's the thing about book one is we're not sure if that's intended for both sword and bucklers yeah. or small or big, right? Right. It's kind of a He mystery. says it's, yeah, He, I think he says you could do all of, with all the weapons. Okay. All right. If I'm not mistaken. It might be just his general introduction to fighting. Yeah. But I think he does it with the sword and small buckler. I'll have to look back at that. It's been a while. So the other thing uh, that I thought was pretty interesting that I noticed um, is that if you are in a low guard and the opponent is in a high or wide guard, then obviously you don't have a beat um, or a feint most of the time because if you feint and somebody's in a wide guard they decide to cut to the center <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're in bad you're in pretty bad shape and of course you don't necessarily have the falso to the hand because their hand isn't in presence so the way that the anonymous sort of addresses this is he gives invitations so he'll do things like if your opponent's in gordia alta you'll go into chingiari porta de ferro or excuse me sopra right Hit the craziest play, the one where, yeah, you're in Cotolonga Strata, your opponent's in Sopra Brachio, you go into Chingiari Porta de Ferro, and your opponent decides to cut a reverso at you, right? You right. would think, okay, I'm going to parry and Gordia de Testa. He right. goes, he says, feint the parry and Gordia de Testa. Yeah. Hell, Anonimo, <laughs> I love that, thinking? dude. I love that thinking? one, man. So that one's great. Like, you're coming up and your sword is pointing like this, and then uh -huh. basically the moment, so if you're doing a head guard, right? Yeah. Um, most people, if they have any skill, recognize that you're going to gain control of their sword when you do yep. that. So they don't actually fall onto it. They usually turn it into some sort of tondo. 
Right. right. So they're like, basically, if you're, if once you get good, you're like, I'm cutting. I'm not going to win this. I'm going to do something to get their sword out. Well, as they cut the tondo, you just tondo behind their tondo, essentially. So you just, yep. oh, you're not going there? Yeah, I didn't think you'd go there. Boom. And then out. <laughs> I love it, man. Yeah, it is a cool play. It, it seems terrifying the first couple times that I tried it. I was like, man, I am gambling with my life here. But the more I got comfortable with it, I was like, wow, this is actually really clever. I like this a lot. Yeah, it's, it's like four <laughs> inches. You wait till it's four inches. So that's yeah. that's some pretty crazy timing. It is. Uh, yeah. So, so Manchelino has a lot of similar similar stuff, but his always kind of has you coming up into head guard. That's mm-hmm. Testa. Sorry, I'm used to just – we call it by the English name, so it's a habit. Um, but that's, that's sort of Manchelino's classic – if you're in a low guard and you are attacked, you just raise up into into Guardia di Testa, and it, or you turn into you cut up into uh, Guardia Alta to draw the attack. Um, yeah. But uh, yes, yeah, so that has that advantage of you know then you have the true edge coming up to protect you, and you also have the advantage that you can just throw attacks from Guardia di Testa. So it's essentially just a way of preparing an attack. So if you're in a low guard, you just prepare, you're throwing a mandrito, you just, instead of throwing it from here, like directly, you're just preparing via a guard change. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the I think the interesting kind of differentiation that we can draw really between Manchiolino and the Anonimo um, and what probably kind of separates them and maybe even puts the Anonimo more in Marazzo's realm is that um, the Anonimo is a counterguard fencer. Yes. Or the Anonimo author. He's right. definitely a counterguard fencer, where Mancialino is all about finding yourself in the same guard as your opponent. Right. Well, so that's if you... Yes, if you're... Well, so we don't know if that's for pedagogical reasons or not. Um, but I guess, yeah... No, all right. I see what you're saying. Like it, he's his whole setup is based on the idea of you placing yourself in the same guard as your opponent, unless you're doing sword and small buckler, in which case it doesn't matter what guard your opponent is in. You're just in Guardia Alta, and you start throwing a bunch of crazy blows. Yeah, I mean, for his offenses though, like his offenses are very, I mean, they're still same guard oriented. Um, I had to double check on that too. Um, because I was like, you know, I just wanted to see. But, you know, the cool thing I think about uh, Machiolino is he's consistent in his his approach to the fight. Where, you know, I, I kind of go back to his general advice where he talks about, you know, if your opponent has, you know, the low guards are good for attacking with a thrust and for defending, mm-hmm. and the high guards are good for attacking with cuts um, and just attacking in general yeah the low um, guards are for defending and the, yeah and the high guards yeah. are for attacking right yeah um and the interesting thing is and he says the only natural attack from the low guards is a thrust i think is what he says right but if you look at if you look at his uh the way that he kind of lays out the attacks um through his low guard plays with the offenses is they always either lead with an att- a thrust or they lead with the falso to the hand almost always yeah yeah and so, yes. I mean, there's, I think there's like one play with uh, Kotalunga Alta. Yeah, where, that day. 
you do the Fendente, but you do that. That's actually a super clever play. I love that play, by the way. Right, and it's basically a thrust. At least that's how I've been doing it. It's a thrusted uh, Fendente. So the way that I do it is, is okay. like this. So I have... I have I use that. I would use that, for example, if I were fighting against an opponent who um, was, you know, very much inclined to stay and measure with me, uh-huh. right? So they're trying to stay within that distance yeah. of me, and so if I take a step back, they take a step back. If I take a step forward, they take a step back. That right. kind of person. Yeah. So what I do is I. St- basically make it look like I'm going to take a step back and instead I gather back and then I right. spring forward with that changing step and that fendente goes right to the top of their head. Doesn't matter if right. they thrust, they cut, or they stay in guard. Doesn't matter what happens that fendente controls the center and just goes straight to the top of their head. Right, it's and basically it's like powerful. a shidle how. Yeah, yeah, with a, yeah exactly. With a gathering step. Yeah, yeah, but don't use that filthy German language here. I, I mean, they're pretty great at describing blade interactions. <laughs> They are. And it's they that are. same basic idea like you're <laughs> yeah. on top and you push it forward so it just traps their blade underneath yours and brings it – it's basically a thrust. So it brings it into your uh, cross as opposed to just chopping down. Yeah. So, I mean, that actually helped me kind of like determine and kind of understand like, the pedagogy pedagogical approach of Manchilino when it comes to sword and large buckler because you know you see Manchilino do this with both sword and large buckler and with the sword alone where he starts with that thrust and then has all the cut options around it right, right. but if you look at the guards that he emphasizes for all of those they're all low guards right, right. so that's why he's doing that so um, that gathering step that he does, that stringere of space, where he does that quick gathering mm-hmm. step at the very beginning, is to trap your opponent in a low guard. So their only good option is to deliver a thrust. Because if they raise their hand to cut, then you can go with a contra-tempo action. Because it'll be big, and you can read the tempo. Because they'll have to raise their hand to deliver a cut. In theory. In reality, it doesn't work out that well. But in theory, yeah. Well, I, the buckler sort of... It's like, you can do that, but then you thrust, and they just parry with their buckler, and it, it gets kind of messy yeah, and complicated. You can, you can kind of... I've got some tricks. All right. I've got some right. tricks. Yeah, I mean, teach, it's possible. I'll teach, I'll teach some classes someday on, on the things that I've learned. All right. All right. <laughs> About his... It's, I think I think that Manchilino actually uses a lot of buckler presses um, and is, is very active with the buckler and engaging in, in strata and trying to kind of close and control your opponent's sword so with that, yours in their buckler. That brings us to the other main huge difference between Manchelino and the Anonimo Bolognese, which is that uh, Manchelino gives us 30 different close, or 32 different close play actions. Yep. So Manchelino's really big about the sword and buckler uh, and coming into the bind, essentially. So kind of binding in the middle of the sword in the center space with neither person at a real advantage and all the different little winding type of cuts you can do and actions from there. And the Inanua does not provide any of that for his um, sword and buckler material, if I, if I recall correctly. He has some for the sword alone, but mm-hmm. his mezza spada actions are not that exciting. Yeah. So Manchelino has a lot of great, great, great ones to do there. Oh, God. The best. The absolute best. That blade grab, he's got the, the Perugian play that Marazzo also does. I actually pulled that off once. I couldn't believe it. it oh, my God. That's amazing. It literally works, and I've never wrestled before. I was just like, 
I mean, I'm just, I don't know. I'm just going to grab onto the you. The book like, says it. Let's see if it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so apparently the idea is if you press in really hard, if you're bigger than somebody and you press really hard, if they don't want to be pushed back, they have to press really hard into you. So then you're like, oh, uh, oh okay. And then in the tempo that they're pushing into you, you're just like, okay, we're going to go back now. And then it turns out there's this whole thing called sacrifice throws, which are fantastic. So yeah, I never did awesome. wrestling, so this is all like news to me. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's um, it's it's pretty cool. I, it's interesting, and and Manchilino does the same kick that Morazzo does, but he does it to the stomach, whereas yes. Morazzo does it to the testicles, right? Because Morazzo is an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, Morazzo's friends with Guido, and if he kicks you in the balls, that's just tough luck. He's got knights to back him up. Manchilino's like, ah. Better not piss this guy off too much. So I'm just going to kick him in the stomach. I love, however, the counter. I've always wanted to do this to somebody. The counter to the kick is to just take your buckler and yeah. drive it into their drive shin. Drive it into their shin, yeah. Boom! Oh, God. Oh! 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 oh. oh it sounds oh. so bad. And this is the time they're not wearing shin guards for this. So no. That's going to hurt no. like a mother. That's a definite, almost <laughs> like worth inviting somebody to kick you to the nards just to be able to buckler them to the shins. <laughs> Yeah, this setup to that place pretty interesting too, but maybe we'll talk about that at a later time. Um, yeah, but yeah, so, and we're going to be having but, a class on that at the event. Sorry that you won't be able to make it there, but really excited yeah. about, uh, I love the Strata plays and really want to work with people to try to figure out um, the tactical context in which you can to use them successfully against highly resistant opponents. Yeah. And of course, that that Marazzo play where he ends up kicking somebody in the nads is also gave gave us the gift of direct swingers. Absolutely fantastic footnote. Right. Where Our gallantry. Yeah, Marazzo says, "Kick him in the nuts and and take a step back and strike a gallant pose." And then <laughs> Jerry says, Jerry says in the footnote, "Gallantry is subjective." <laughs> It was a different time, a different era. <laughs> oh, man. That was oh, that's yeah. awesome. But, yeah, I love those try to play. So I guess maybe that's a little side thing we can do sometime is start putting up interpretations of not only these different uh, strata plays, but realistic context in which to use them. Yeah, for sure. That's, for sure. that's the thing missing from Manchelino that Anonimo is a lot more generous about providing is – how you get into the situation where this is. Manchelino's right. is pretty sparse on how you end up in a lot of these binds, especially in a true edge to true edge bind. He never describes a single instance where one arises as a deliberate result of your fencing. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I've, I've kind of found that as a natural progression of, like if you have that as your, your set intention going in, that Stretta is your ultimate goal, and your opponent tries to be defensive in the way that where they are inherently trying to just parry. So you come in with a series of attacks. You know, you can start with your provocation, your invitation, however you want to come in. Once you've initiated that first, second intention, a lot of times you end up in either true edge to true edge or false edge to false edge bind where you can start pressing those strata plays because you've closed the distance enough that you can start to press them. Yeah. We don't we don't get a lot of parrying in Renard Fencing. Mostly people just flee rapidly. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big grassy field where we practice. I was like, yeah. I've lost advantage. Whew, I'm running back as fast as I can. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because there's you know it's it's hard to maintain that proper order striking, and so if you chase somebody, you're, it's very easy to give up that that thrust down the middle. It's, I mean, it's a tactically it great option. It is. It's, it's a fantastic option, but that's where you know you can get some contra tempo actions, and you can start to kind of you know start going for some of the defenses as well. You know, that's for me. That's where I kind of get a little bit more confidence, is because we've worked on the the defenses that Manchieleno gives in the sword and large buckler aspect of things so much that when somebody actually starts attacking me like that, I'm like, sweet. Well, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, I've been waiting forward to this. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought the entire purpose of fencing is actually to try to get people to step forward because they can't run away in the instant in which they're stepping forward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which also the Anonimo and Manchelino both provide a number of attacks that are start on the retreat. That's true, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, too, is well, we're kind of talking about this with the Anonimo and its sword and small buckler, is his, his defense is actually very percussive. Um, he uses a lot of beats. So Gordy to Testa beats or even True Edge to True Edge, beating your opponent's cuts as they're coming in. I guess it depends on your interpretation. Or, or your f my favorite, which is basically Manchiolino's get out of every situation, which is when in doubt, Gordy to Faccia. Yeah, <laughs> back up, stick the point in their face. <laughs> we had right. a, an instructor come out once who called that the fuck off parry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the fuck off defense. Fuck off! <laughs> that's right i love that but you know i so when uh when i was working through the anonymo plays with my students there's another play from the anonymo that kind of stood out to me a little bit where um you're in Cotolonga Estrada, your opponent is in gorda de faccia and i was like okay so how would we find ourselves in this situation if we're thinking about the progression of the fight how am i getting my opponent to go into gorda de faccia because nobody stands in gorda de faccia you know i don't know maybe right. you guys do but I, I occasionally just, so like when we get lazy you know like yeah, you just kind of like, like yeah, yeah, about, yeah let's just bind yeah yeah right. it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of low yeah just stick it out there let's just see what happens you know i mean right, if you don't fair. feel like moving and you don't want to yeah. have to worry about getting whacked on the hands it's a it's a great card to be it, it is a great card to be again the safest guard, right? Yes. I mean, unless somebody's coming with that false underneath, in which case you have to turn your buckler underneath, which is from another play in the Anonymo. Right. Um, also from Manchilino. Um But um, the cool thing is that um, with this play, so I was thinking about what would kind of cause that, right? So you think about somebody trying to go into like a contra tempo type action. So I was like, all right, let's go into Gordia Alta and let's cut a Fendente that goes into Cota Longestrada. So like a reversal fendente, right? Mm -hmm. um, and basically like lure our opponent to think that we're going to cut this reversal at them. So they go into Gordia de Faccia to kind of protect themselves because that's the contra tempo action, right? right? So you use it as a way to, to sort of counter contra tempo where you come up underneath and then you beat with the rim of your buckler, which is another cool thing that the Anonymo does oh, is the buckler rim beats. The buckler right? rim beat, yeah. So you, you're underneath their sword, so you beat it up and off to the left, right? Which actually works a little bit better if you're just going straight up into it. Yes. Um, from what we found. And then you just shank them right up underneath the chin. Yeah. It's really nasty. That, it's really that nasty. Totally sounds, totally sounds believable. So you're just boom yeah. and then bam. Boom, yeah. boom. Yeah. 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 Yeah, super cool play. Yeah, and so there's another thing about those rising falsos um, with the sword and small buckler is I believe, at least I put this in my book, but I believe they wore straw hats to protect their heads. 
Interesting. And a lot of the, I think one of the reasons for the rising falso is that instead of hitting somebody in the face, it was customary to actually just knock the hat off of their head. <laughs> That's so, so cool. <laughs> so like, so the, there's this whole fencing context. Like if you and I were fencing, right? I wouldn't kick you in the balls. We're buddies. Like, yeah. I would be looking for those opportunities. I wouldn't stab you near your eye. I wouldn't want to give you a black eye or anything like that. I'd, I'd be looking for ways to be flicking that off of your head. Unless you started pissing me off by running backwards too much or demonstrating cowardice. And likewise, if I started doing that, then it's like, all right. But, then, uh, you know, but if you fight in the proper fashion, then boom, you just knock the hat off their head all as well, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think a reason, um, so especially for Manchelino, right, his, his first attack is boom, cuts, draws in the invitation there, lands with the false or the, the reversal on top. That's a perfect action for just lifting up and knocking the hat off somebody's head. Likewise, with the rising falso under that was going to come under the chin, you can just deviate that also to just knock the hat right off knock the hat off. head. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I yeah, love so that. So my, my, my long-term goal is to actually get into historical fencing gear and actually fence sword and small buckler with hats and without fencing masks and any of the garbage that we have now but like to do that to see what really works that would be awesome yeah i'm kind of excited about that prospect one day yeah yeah that's super cool so a, a couple of the things that i noticed um was the only time that the anonimo ever wants you to be in a high guard against a low guard is if you are in Gordia Alta. So that way you can do those rising falso plays where he likes to do that right. uh, rising your, that montante right. into a thrust. Right. That is the only time he actually assumes or encourages you, I, I assume, with the plays, encourages you to assume a high guard against a low guard. Otherwise, you, it, whether you're in Gordia de Faccia, Gordia Soprabrachio, so, um, Gordia Alta, you're with those higher and wide guards, um, and Soto Baracchio, I guess, because that would be considered a wide guard as well, you're only assuming those guards when your opponent is also in a higher wide guard. Interesting. Yeah. That because, kind of makes sense. Yeah. yeah, because you don't want to attack somebody who's in a prepared defensive position. So it you have more of a tactical advantage if they're in an offensive position and you put yourself in an offensive position to sort of progress the play. Right. And I mean, like... And an offense, so Sopra Bracho is a technically an offensive position, but it's less offensive than Guardia Alta because it's lower. And so it's kind of like just one step down the tree. And so that's why you're able to come over the top of their cuts and stuff like that. That's yeah. super interesting. Yeah. So. yeah. So much the sword and the small buckler. It's such a fascinating weapon system. Oh, yeah. No, I had a, I had a great time kind of weeding my way through that. That was... Um, it was an adventure, for sure. Um, and and they're they're cool, but you know, some of those buckler beats are are pretty challenging. Um, it's it's yeah. tough to pull some of those off. So it works. I I found that they work against a very if a very fixed opponent. Like if you get you know into measure and that opponent and your opponent doesn't really want to launch an attack at you and you're, you're kind of hanging out the distance and you're in Guardia Alta to try to get them to attack you and they still won't, then you can kind of do that. And if you actually catch it, then you can roll with it. 
But also, maybe. speaking of the Anonimo Bolognese as a counterfighter, um, and I think maybe this rises to the heart of what he does, is he takes the position with, I think, every situation of approaching it from Guardia di Testa. And this, he always looks at it from how to counter Guardia di Testa, but essentially you can reverse the argument and say he's also giving you what to do when you're in Guardia di Testa against every guard. And so, it and I think it kind of dovetails to the uh, German Sword and Buckler Manual, the I-33-133, mm-hmm. yeah. because Guardia di Testa is essentially the equivalent to half, half shield. Half, half shield, yep. Right. So essentially just walking in, baiting them into doing something, and then you launch your attack. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or that being the natural progression for, like, if you're, if you're thinking about cutting to a place where your sword and your buckler are connected... Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so it doesn't matter what guard you're in, whether you're in Sopra Brachio, whether you're in Soto Brachio, uh, whether you're in Gordia Alta, your natural, it's basically long point, right? But it's right. long point with the sword kind of extended up in the air. Right. And so that's so kind of... It's a position that a reverso will pass through. It is, right. Yeah. And you can make a Mandrito kind of stop there. You can make it, well, I guess... Yeah, the, yeah, you yeah, can prepare one there. So yeah, you're here, and yeah. you prepare it here, and then stop there. Yeah, yeah, yeah work. you know, you just you just kind of stick it out yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. man, it's a shame we're not getting together, man. We could have so much fun preparing doing oh, stuff yeah. on Sword and Buckler together. God, oh, I love what a that shame. so much. Yeah. So I guess... I don't find many Sword and Buckler nerds, sadly. Oh, man, it's, it's, my, it's pretty much my only study right now in the Bolognese system is just Sword really? and Buckler. Really? Yeah. But yeah, I've kind of gotten bored of sword. Basically, I kind of figured out enough for Spada Solo that it's kind of like at this point, it's what I yeah. teach. But I mean, I've got a year's worth of material, and it's it's basically the same thing over and over again. It's just right. You've got, got Mangiolino, you've got Morazzo. They're both pretty short. I mean, you've got Dalagoke. Do you teach from Dal? Oh, well, I guess you're doing the Anonimo, so you've got a ton of material. I just do the Anonimo. Yeah, yeah. for for sword and for sword alone, I I'm purely Anonimo. I don't yeah. know why you would do anything else. So, yeah. I, I kind of wanted to wrap this up with yeah, let's uh, wrap. Uh, Murazzo's counterguards, um, which is also interesting, because Murazzo actually gives us advice for what to do when you're fighting with a sword and buckler uh, in that progression of guards that he gives. Uh, in the oh, is that in the sword and buckler context? I wasn't aware of that. Well, I think so, because I mean, he has a lot of sword and buckler images in there, and he kind of, it seems like that's supposed to be with sword and buckler. Hmm, okay. Yeah, I, I, maybe I might be assuming too much there. There, there might be some more information out there to kind of Because he's using Becca Posa and Becca Chesa, but he never actually describes fencing with them. So that right. gives me pause about that. Yeah, and it, it's in that in that guard section that he... Uh, it's actually in... I think it's in the Becca Chesa, mm-hmm. um, where he, he talks about the counter guards, where he says if your opponent is in Cotolonga de Stesa, you should go into Becca Chesa. If your opponent is in Cotolonga Larga, then you should go into Cotolonga Strada. Mm-hmm. If your opponent is in Becca you should go into Cinghiari Porta de Ferro. And then if your opponent is in Gordia de Entrere, you should go into Gordia Alta. You should go into Alta versus Entrare, huh? That's very interesting. Yeah. This is like, we're going to close the main line. You, well, I guess that's the whole point of Gordia Alta. You can attack any line you want. You Every can. Every line is open. <laughs> yeah. You can yeah. throw all eight. All eight, right? One, two, three. Yeah, every every single line naturally strikes from Guardialta. I mean, that is why Vigiani calls it the perfect offensive guard. Well, that's not the perfect offensive guard. Yeah. That's the imperfect offensive it's guard. It's the imperfect but, guard. Yeah. But it is, yeah. 
Okay. If you, it's a perfect offensive guard if you have something to protect your hand. Yeah, if you turn it into Becca Seza, then it is the perfect offensive guard because then you yeah, can give yeah. a thruster or a cut. But right. it is offensive, right? Because you can right. do all the attacks. That's an interesting system of counter guards. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I've always wanted to sort of delve a little bit deeper into that, but I haven't. Um, there's more research that needs to be done, so maybe maybe in a future episode we'll get back to sword and buckler and. Man, so I think we're pretty much. I mean, you know, we're gonna get back to it, but. Yeah, we're I, at this point. I assume we're just recording every Wednesday. We'll either have well, if we're not recording, we're meeting to figure out what we're at, where we're going. I mean, we have so much work to do that. As far as I can tell, we're gonna be at this for years. <laughs> well. It's a labor of love. It's yes, a labor it is. Of love. Yes, and that's it's because be awesome. we love you, dear listener. And uh, we will continue to bring you this fantastic content. It is amazing stuff, amazing stories, and it's an amazing hobby. That's right. Steven, thank you, sir. And uh, I'll see you next week for the next episode. All right, Joshua. Good times, man. You too, buddy. <laughs>